Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome this morning to Bethany. As we gather together, we're beginning a new series today. And our series will be considering uh, the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. So if you know your Bible a little bit, that would be like Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 5, fifth chapter, and then maybe the first 10 to 12 verses. We'll be looking at that for the next two to three months, about 10 weeks probably. And a very important topic, so please join me, we'll pray together, and then uh, I'll explain to you as we lay a foundation for a series together why this matters in our moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day, thank you for the rain that waters the earth, thank you for the beauty and sustenance offered in creation. Thank you that no matter what happens, as kingdoms rise and fall, that you continue to sustain life through your goodness and mercy, we're grateful for that. Uh, quite our hearts now to receive from you the food you have for us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And may we have ears to hear and hearts respond not to what I say, but to what you would say in the midst of my words. And so may your spirit minister to us, Father, and shape us. We're mindful as we enter a new year that there's in varying measures hope and anxiety and concern and opportunity in the days ahead. And would you shepherd us, Father, even this morning, that we might catch a vision for what it means to be the people of God. And we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. To frame our series, I want to look a little bit at a book that has shaped my experience quite a few years ago entitled Resident Aliens. And this book is one of the books that I will be using in study as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And I'm intrigued by the opening chapter because... Uh, one of the authors, anyway, is roughly my age, which makes him around 60, which makes him old, and more significantly, makes him very wise, right? And, and so he's been around a while, and he has some things to say about the shifts in culture that all of us are aware of, but particularly we who are older can look back and see how things have changed over the years. And so this is, this is what he writes, the opening paragraph of the book, chapter one. Sometime between 19 and 1960 and 1980, an old, inadequately conceived world ended, and a fresh new world began. We don't mean to be overly dramatic, although there are many who've never yet heard this news. It's nevertheless true, a tired old world has ended, and an exciting new one is awaiting recognition, bringing a renewed sense of what it means to follow Christ. So he posits a vast change between 1960 and 1980, and then he goes on to unpack like the presenting problem that he encountered in his town in South Carolina. And he said, for me, culture shifted entirely on one Sunday evening in 1963 in Greenville, South Carolina. And then he talks about how until that particular Sunday, all the shops were closed on Sunday. Now, I'm just curious, who in the room is old enough to remember all the shops closed on Sunday? We're a dying breed, my friends. But there's still a few of us around who remembered those days, right? And, and uh, in the town in which I grew up, Fresno, California, you couldn't buy a gallon of milk, you couldn't buy a gallon of gas. If you need a shop, you need a shop on Saturday because Sunday was, and you'd fill it in, the Lord's Day, right? And this is, a day, this is not a day for playing ball, if you remember that movie, uh, Chariots of Fire. It's not a day for doing anything other than going to church. So what happened in Greenville uh, was on a particular Sunday <clears throat> in 1963, Fox Theater opened their doors 
on Sunday. And this was hugely, it created a big controversy because this, this author, he said in our youth group, so seven of us, regular attenders of my Methodist youth group, we made a pact to enter the front door of the church, be seen, and then quietly slip out the back door to join John Wayne at the Fox Theater. So these kids came, presented themselves in church, but then they left, and they went to the movies instead. And then he says, that evening has come to represent for me a watershed in the history of Christendom. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he goes on, this is what he says. He says, uh, in my childhood, our parents never worried about whether we'd grow up Christian. The church was the only show in town. I mean, literally, right? Ideologically, it's the one thing. Like, what, what are you going to become when you grow up? Well, there could be many, many things politically, many things vocationally, many things economically. But the one thing you knew, you're going to grow up, you're going to be a Christian, you're going to go to church. Because what else do you do? That's what, that's what people do. If you're born in South Carolina, that's what you do. You grow up, you go to church. So on Sundays, the town closed down, traffic jam on Sunday mornings at 9.45 because everybody's rushing out to Sunday school. Uh, and, and then he says, Out, outwardly, everything looked good and right in our culture. This was, in his view, this was Christian. He says, never mind that we were deeply racially segregated. Never mind that people with developmental disabilities were pushed off to the margins, had no rights whatsoever, educationally, economically. Uh, never mind that domestic violence was rampant in the church, mostly male and female, and the church was silent about it. Never mind that in the, within the Catholic church, there was rampant pedophilia and sexual abuse within the Protestant church. Never mind. It's a Christian world, man. And the, ch the shops are closed on Sunday, and we all go to church. It's all good. And the, the, uh, the authors posit as a kind of a fundamental thesis that world blowing up is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Because what it's done is it's forced us to radically re-examine what it means to be people of faith in our culture, and in our world. Kind of a post-Christian culture in which we find ourselves. And, and what this has done, this post-Christian world in which we now find ourselves, is it's led to some debates among, you know, church leaders and theologians about what it means to be the church. And those debates really began in the 60s, I think, or at least I, I was aware of them in the 60s in my childhood. And they're largely broken out into two categories, articulated in one book, The Concept of a Believer's Church. John Howard Yoder wrote this book years ago. But he says you have an activist church, conversionist church. Those are the two prevailing options to this day. Of like, how do we be the people of God? And here's the activist church. The activist church, <coughs> excuse me, sees sin mostly as structural, Right? In other words, it call, and I'm quoting now, it calls on its members to see God in the work behind the movements for justice wherever they're happening in the world, and you, like you pour gas on that flame, right? It hopes to be on the right side of history. So what, what, what does an activist church look like? It looks like this. Look, if black lives matter to the world, black lives matter to us. If, if uh, uh, racial reconciliation matters to the world, matters to us. If gun control matters to the world, matters to us. If environmental stewardship matters to the world, Matters to us. That way we walk with the world into the problems of the world and we become allies and that's how people see God and learn to like God and see that God is on their side. It, and it looks good at a level, but here's the problem. When we view sin as systemic and when we're so desperately eager to be popular 
then, then we, we pour gas on the issues that are kind of the, what, what I call the issue du jour, right? We jump on, oh yeah, we're for that too, but we remain silent about other issues that are deeply problematic in our culture. And they're problematic not only uh, because they're, they're, not only are they unpopular, but they're, but they're personal problems, but they have, they have cultural consequences. In other words, great, I'm against nuclear proliferation. Am I for a nuclear family? Am I for that? Do, do I think that two parents matter more than one? I mean, does God have anything to say about that? Is, is part of the reason that homelessness is a vast problem in our city and in our world because the social fabric of society has broken apart? Mother Teresa says that the poorest country in the world is America because she defines poverty not as, as material wealth but as relational wealth. And she says if relational wealth is the acid test, America is the bottom of the heap, lonely, isolated, broken relationships, and, and the activist church doesn't want to talk about those things because those things call people to personal responsibility, call people to personal ethics, call people to repentance, and that's, who wants to do that? So like in an activist church, it's all about, you know, holding hands and putting bumper stickers on the car, you know, think world peace and, you know, anti-nuclear and pro-reconciliation, all good, in my opinion, and I think in the Bible's opinion, all good, but inadequate. Does this make sense? So, so that's the activist church. The conversionist church reacts to that, and this happened in the 60s, still happening today. The conversionist church says, and I'm still quoting, no amount of tinkering with the structures of society will counter the effects of human sin. The problem is the structural is personal. Everybody needs to repent and follow Jesus. The promises of secular optimism are false because they attempt to bypass the biblical call to admit personal guilt. These people over here who are systemic seeking to address things as activists call people to jump on a bandwagon and do good stuff and never call people to repent. We have to repent. And so this, this conversion to church includes a biblical call to admit personal guilt and experience reconciliation to God, but because this paradigm is overwhelmingly personal, it affects sexual sin and family structure, but doesn't address systemic social issues. Quiet on nuclear war, for example. So what I ended up with in my, in my childhood, my uncle was a pastor of an activist church, okay? And uh, I, was, I grew up in a Baptist church, very much like a conversionist church. So every Sunday in my Baptist church, I heard two things. Jesus is coming any day now. He's returning, and so what, like, the social issues of the day don't matter. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, hey, man, that's good news. That means Jesus' return is even closer, right? So if the world is arming up, it's going to blow up, and if it blows up, Jesus is going back, <laughs> arm the world, right? And, 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 and so we didn't care about social issues in my church. We cared about getting your butt into heaven, right? So every week, an altar call, every week, a, a word that Jesus is returning, and a call to, uh, you know, stay married and keep sex within the bounds of marriage. And marriage is between a man and a woman. And that, that's how I grew up. <laughs> so my uncle in this activist church, he, he marched in a protest march uh, to ban nuclear weapons, right? And this created in my family a gigantic controversy. My uncle lives a mile from us. And my uncle got arrested, okay? And he doesn't have dreadlocks, doesn't smoke LSD or anything like that. He's just a pastor. That's all he is. But he, like with his necktie and suit on, he marches, he gets arrested, and, and uh, my, my mom 
goes, what's happened to our family? We have a criminal now in the family, right? And, and like this, this became a huge debate. And, and, and so we have this divided world, activist churches, conversionist churches. As a result, very few pro-life Democrats, to be blunt, very few Republicans seeking to address systemic violence by reducing arms, either nationally or locally. <laughs> very few Republicans uh, calling for a collectively uh, stewardship paradigm of creation. Two parties with alliances, and listen, very important, neither of which fully represent Christ's reign. Do you understand that? Neither cut it. <laughs> so this matters a great deal in our moment because so many people are putting so much stock in these models that what I hear continually as a pastor and online and in the news, what I hear continually is vast overblown hope and vast overblown despair because of what's happening two weeks from now. And I'm here to say to you, as we'll see in just a moment, our calling doesn't change at all in two weeks, just like it didn't change in 2008, just like it didn't change in 2000, just like it didn't change in 1992, just like it never changes. So, activist church falling short because it doesn't address personal conversion, conversionist church falling short because it doesn't address systemic social issues. Is there a third way? Could there possibly be a third way? I'm so glad you asked because I have the answer, right? <laughs> Third way, yes, it's actually the way of the confessing church. And, and the one who articulates this so clearly is Karl Barth, and he did this in 1934 in Germany, so you know it mattered, right? I mean, Hitler's just come into power and is calling for the church to be deeply intertwined and aligned with the movement of the Reich, and it created a great debate within the Christian community of Europe. Should we align with this movement? I mean, unemployment is down. People have jobs again. Our national pride is restored. Like, from all outward purposes, good things are happening here. And Bart sounded a warning call. And what he said is we are called to offer a radical alternative to both of these models, activist and conversionist, a radical alternative that is global, not national. An alternative that will challenge all power structures of this world at various points and also at times align with various power structures. The confessing church views sin as both personal and systemic, both sexual and financial and environmental. Most important, though, and now I quote, rejecting both the individualism of the conversionist and the secularism of the activist, the confessing church finds its main task to lie not in the personal transformation of individual hearts, nor in the modification of society, but rather, hear this, rather in the congregation's determination to worship Christ in all things. Boom! That's your calling. Worship Christ in all things. Well, what does that mean? Well, we seek to be a church, and this, I hope, is us. We seek to be a church, <coughs> excuse me, clearly visible in the world, in which people are faithful to their promises, love their enemies, tell the truth, honor the poor, suffer for righteousness, and thereby testify to the amazing community-creating power of God. You are called, in other words, to be light shining in the midst of darkness. This is what it says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. We'll get to that in a moment, but that's it. That's your calling. That's our calling collectively to be in the world, as Jesus said, John 17, 16, to be in the world as the presence of Christ, in the world, but what? Not of the world. Okay. Now, if you're following, and I hope you are, and if you're not, welcome back. This is the sermon. 
then, then, here's the, then we ask a question. Yeah, that sounds good. But how can I be in the world and not of the world? Because the conversionists were not of, but not in. <laughs> and the activists were in and of. So how do I do this? Well, Jesus gave us an entire manifesto on how to do this. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're studying this for a little while. Because our calling is to make the reign of Christ visible in our world. It's at the core, I hope, of everything we do. But the reality is, our calling uh, to be light means that we will shine brightest in history's darkest moments. And so if you feel like the world is getting darker, then I have good news for you. The darker the world gets, the brighter and more significant the light becomes. But the more important thing becomes our calling to be people of light. Does this, does this make sense? So I hope you see this and embrace this and understand this because this is, I mean, you're called to be the light of the world. And when it's dark, your light shines. And the beauty about your calling to be light is you can be a Republican or a Democrat or a capitalist, or a socialist, or a communist, or an anarchist, or an environmentalist, or a minimalist, and you'll be light. You'll be light. Uh, so, when you are light, then the, your light in a dark world is hugely significant. And that frames for me 2017. I want to be light. And uh, hopefully us to be light collectively. I was in Quebec speaking some years ago, and it was January, and it's north of Montreal, so it's way up there, dark, super early in the day. And my friends invited me to dinner, to go have dinner at their house. But where they were living at the time was they were living on, like on a pond deep in the forest, a mile from the school where I was teaching. No roads, just a, tr a hiking trail to get to their house. They had a baby, but they were, it was totally this kind of minimalist, primitive stuff that I'm drawn to anyway. Like they, they were propane lamps and no electricity. So I'm going over for supper, which means it's going to be dark. They give me directions. There's a trail, and then it breaks off, and you go this way, and then it breaks off again, and you go this way. And there's three choices. You know, it's like that. It's that kind of thing in this thick forest. So they said, you'll need a headlamp. I, and I was a little insulted even by the statement. Well, I know that. Like, I'm a woods guy. I get it. And I, I always carry a headlamp, right? Always carry your 10 essentials everywhere you go. I had a headlamp. So what I didn't have were extra batteries. <laughs> and when it's like zero out, uh, no to the wise, you, after you've hiked about a quarter of a mile, your batteries die. And when they die in the cold, they don't die a slow death. They die a sudden death. So you, I went from light to darkness in 100 yards. Now, it's, now I'm standing in the middle of the forest. It's zero. And it's dark, right? Now, this is sad, and, like, and I'm cold, and remember the directions? It, the trail splits, it splits again, it splits again in three ways, and I can barely see the trail because it's that dark. It's cloudy, the snow is coming. So, here I am, and I just go, well, I suppose it's a thick enough forest that as long as I can walk, I'm going the right direction. <laughs> so, I continue to walk, and then there was a Y, and then I did a, a right, and then there were more Ys, or Ms, or whatever they'd be, if there's many. And, 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 then, so, and then I get there, and I don't know which way to go, and then, as I'm waiting, I look far away, and I see the light. 
the light of the cabin. And I want to tell you, that light was life in that moment. Does that make sense to you? Like, I love that particular light. This light, I hate this light. It's right here shyly right now. I go, who needs this light? I don't want this light. Uh, but I guess if you're looking on the line, you need a light. So I tolerate the light, but I don't enjoy the light. But when I'm in the midst of darkness, my headlamp is dead, and, and I'm cold, it's about the snow, and I see a light. That light is life. So Fast forward, John 1, in him Christ was life, and his life was, what? Does anyone know? The light of men. Christ is hope. <laughs> so the world imploding with immigration crisis, racial reconciliation problems everywhere we turn, economic fears, healthcare fears, environmental fears, nuclear proliferation fears, the best news in the world is this. Christ shines as hope in all of that fear. Christ shines as hope. Now, even better news in a way, or more profound news, or more challenging news is this. Though Christ is the light, in this manifesto, in Matthew 5, here's what Jesus says. You, you, look around the room, you are the what? You're the light of the world. Because Christ, in his body, is ascended. But in his spirit now, his spirit has filled you. You are light and darkness. You are reconciliation in division. You are peace in the midst of anxiety. You are generosity in the midst of greed. You are hope in the midst of despair. You are light. Go be light. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's why I'm so thrilled to share this with you for the next few weeks. So uh, we're going to look this morning at a couple of foundational truths uh, regarding the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God, to set the stage. First, the nature of God's kingdom, and second, uh, the nature of kingdom people. So nature of God's kingdom, and just very briefly at the end, <coughs> nature of God's kingdom people. So, uh, I don't even know this, but Jesus actually spoke more about the king, uh, kingdom of God than any other subject. More than heaven and hell, more than sexual ethics, more than money. Uh, just in Matthew alone, the phrase, the kingdom of God, occurs at least 64 times and occurs numerous times in many of the other gospels as well. And when Jesus began his public ministry, some of the first words out of his mouth, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, here's Jesus, repent, which means start living a different way, right? Turn around, go in the wrong direction, live differently. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. Good news, and he's, Jesus proclaiming the good news, that's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto articulating what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. So if, you're, if the kingdom of God is here and you're citizens, well, what are, the, what, are, like what are our common values that we hold as citizens? That's the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at those together. But we begin this morning, we want to look particularly at the nature of God's kingdom. And if you like filling in blanks, this morning I have a special treat for you. There are blanks to fill in in your sermon outline, right? Uh, I'll give you the answers now, and we'll unpack these together. Because I, I think these three truths about the nature of God's kingdom are all very important. The kingdom is small but powerful. <coughs> it's now but not yet. And it's an ecosystem. Those three things. So we're going to look at all of those. Beginning with this, kingdom of God, small but powerful. Do you know Matthew 13, 31 to 33? This is where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a what? Does anyone know? A mustard seed. He says, and so... Seed, and then Jesus, this is what he says, it's, this, it's the smallest of seeds, but once it, you know, falls to the ground and grows, it becomes a gigantic tree, and then it says, and it's a tree that blesses, it provides shade 
and nesting grounds uh, for the birds of the air. So, landscape parable, right? Small, little seed, thrown on the ground. And by the way, uh, I'm just going to say this. Jesus often speaks poetically, so if you're a literalist in the room, and I've heard this, this is why I bring it up, people say, it's not the smallest seed. And I go, please, give me a break here. This doesn't matter that he said it's the smallest seed. It's not literally the smallest seed. Just speaking poetically, you understand? So we don't have to panic that the resurrection didn't happen because Jesus said the smallest seed. No, 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 it's okay. Just, just take it, right? Literal people, I mean, oh, sometimes. Like I'm telling you a story and, my, and I'll go, yeah, and so we're at the game last night and there were 10 people in the room or whatever and then someone will say, there were 12. And I go, come on. Does it? The point is, more than one, less than 3,000, it was a group, <laughs> right? We'll just estimate. The small seed, but, small seed, bearing, you know, big fruit. Now, what does this mean? Well, they, this is very important for us, and here's why. Because uh, uh, we live in a culture that thinks big and, and exalts big initiatives. Does this make sense? And so... Uh, we always are taught, you know, shoot for the stars and, you know, do big things. And the, when the church jumps on this bandwagon, sometimes we do. We go, yeah, you know what we're going to do? Um, we're gonna, I heard this as a kid. Every, every person will hear the gospel by the year 2000. We're going to mobilize. We're going to do it, right? You know, websites and money and missions and plans and objectives, big. And now, you know, racial, racial reconciliation, big. Big movements, and now, um, you know, poverty, end poverty by 2015, big movement. Oh, it's 2017, so let's redo. <laughs> end poverty by 2025. And so always thinking big, and here's the problem with thinking big, two things. Sometimes big uh, releases me from personal responsibility. Does that make sense? Like I'm vicariously associated with big. Oh, yeah, man, I'm all about racial reconciliation. Why? Because I signed a thing online. Really? I mean... That's not it. That's not a seed. That's not a seed. So we think big, and sometimes thinking big means because if we're vicariously involved, we're involved. No, we're not involved if we're vicariously involved. You're a seed you need to plant in the ground, as we'll see in just a moment. So that's, that's a problem with big. And the other problem with big is big makes small feel insignificant. And so when I look at MLK, or I look at the march in Selma, or I look at Barack Obama, or I look at at a pastor of a church of 10,000, if it happens to be me, and I see how many Twitter followers they have or something like that, and I go, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not big? Do you see? And so I love this because Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a what? Mustard, small. A million small acts is what makes God's reign visible. This is why Jesus said it this way. Every cup of cold water given in Jesus' name is a seed sown. Every night you spend here in the shelter building a relationship and giving dignity to a woman who lives on the streets, that's the kingdom of God. Every visit to the hospital, that's the kingdom of God. Every, every book read uh, with, a, with an elderly person, that's the kingdom of God. Every, every time you say, hey, we're going to throw a party for our neighbors, and our neighbors are gay and Muslim and atheist and burnt out Catholics and rich and poor and we're going to throw a party and we're all going to get together and we're going to laugh and we're going to enjoy good food. That's the kingdom of God. 
And so, so Jesus is saying here, every act of justice, every act of generosity, mercy, reconciliation, everything done in Jesus' name is sowing seeds of the kingdom. And here's the thing about seeds. When seeds are sown, good things happen. Like, you're not the fruit police. You don't have to worry about the fruit. Your job is to sow the seed. Does this, does this make sense? So Jesus tells the second parable. He says, hey, seed was sown. Some fell on 80th, and that's too bad because nothing came of it. But, uh, you know, other seeds fell in the soil. We all know this. Dandelions, right? The seeds, they go. And they're sown. And when they, and the, when they find good soil, they'll thrive, Right? But the little dandelion things that blow and they land on 80th, hopeless. But what Jesus is saying in that parable is this. You're not responsible for what happens to the seed. Your responsibility is just to do this all the time. And, and, and life becomes then this kind of grand adventure where you see yourself as a seed sower continually. My, when I was a kid, uh, back when churches were, or, you know, stores were closed on Sundays, remember that? When I was, back, when I was, I'd get sick, I had this stack of uh, 45 LPs that I would play, these little tiny records. They were all stories, like they were Dr. Seuss stories and stuff like that. So I'm laying in bed with the flu, and then these records would play, and then you'd have no way of knowing this, but one falls off the thing, and then when it's done, the needle leaves, and another falls down, and you could listen to stories for hours, and you flip them all over, and you hear the other story on the other side. So, you know, I'd hear all these stories. My favorite story by far to this day from my childhood, Johnny Appleseed. I love that guy. And I used to say in school, when people say, what do, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be Johnny Appleseed. And people were like, well, well why? I go, I just, I just love the vision of this guy walking around, doesn't own much. He's got a backpack and a bag of seed here. And, you know, he's wandering around, he's just... This is what he's doing all the time. He's just sowing seed and he's making applesauce and going to parties all through the Wild West. Like he's John Muir with a bag of seed. And, I, and when I was a kid, I was like this, that's who I want to be. I'll buy a van and be a climbing bum and sow hope, right? And so, so the, the, here's, the, here's the principle. If we begin to think of ourselves as seed sowers, life becomes this grand adventure. Why? Because our call, your calling is not to do, you don't have to do grand things. You cross one racial divide and have a relationship and have lunch, you're sowing seeds. Care for one person who's dying, you're sowing seeds. Speak truth, you're sowing seeds. You look at MLK, and Mother Teresa, and you get depressed because it seems like they've got a bunch of seeds or they're big seeds or whatever. Don't worry about it. You have seed to sow. Sow, sow. <laughs> That's my motto for 2017. S-O-S-O-W. Wake up every morning and recognize you have in your pockets by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit and your identity in Christ, you have seeds, seeds of hope, seeds of justice, seeds of generosity, seeds of healing, seeds of reconciliation. Go out and sow those seeds. That's the Christian life. And so the point is, there are a million moments like that in the world, and each moment like that is a seed. And you don't need to see the fruit. You just need to sow the seed. So Ecclesiastes 11.6 says it this way. So... Sow your seed in the morning and don't be idle in the evening. What does that mean? That means, like, when do I not sow my seed? And it's a rhetorical question, and here's the answer. Never. 
What are you sowing seed? You're sowing seed when you're at a football game. <laughs> you're sowing seed when you're at work. You're sowing seed when you're changing diapers. You're sowing seed when you're receiving care in the hospital. You're sowing seed when you're giving care in the hospital. You're sowing seed when you, when you run a theater. You're sowing seed in a financial crisis. You're sowing seed in the midst of your own personal healing. You're sowing seed when you name your addiction and deal with it. You're sowing, so sow, sow seed. <laughs> That's your calling. And here's the, here's the beauty of it. You don't know what'll happen. You don't need to know. You don't need to know. I, I was in Ennsburg some years ago. And this, I'm visiting friends and they took us to church, my wife and I. And then at the end of the service, a guy comes up to me. And he says, Richard, this is in Ennsburg, Austria. Richard. And I go, who are you? <laughs> and, and he said, don't you remember? 1990. No. You spoke in Canada, on the island. I was a student. It was Genesis 2. You talked about marriage. There was a girl I was going to marry. After you talk, I broke up with her. I said, I don't remember even being in Canada in 1990. I don't know, what, you're, what are you talking about? He said, well, listen, I broke up with her, and then because I, it was an unhealthy relationship, and I knew I needed to end it, and now here I am looking. This is my wife, and here's our three kids, and, and he goes, these three kids wouldn't be alive other than your sermon in Canada in 1990. Well, thank you, right? So, so, so. Am I making sense? The kingdom of God... Oh, yeah, let's, let's save the world. You don't need to save the world. You need to go to the hospital and care for somebody who's sick. You, you, need, to, you need to have intimacy in your marriage. <laughs> you need to have your neighbors over. So, so. Kingdom. It's small but significant. Never apologize for being a seed sower. Second, it's now but not yet. Very interesting. Matthew 1, Matthew 3. In both places, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. And then, in Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you. And he's speaking second person, plural. So he's speaking to a group of people. And he said, he's saying, the kingdom of God is within you all, like all of you, the kingdom of God. You have the kingdom of God. And then, he, literally, it could be translated this way, the kingdom of God is among y'all, or within y'all, and it's, and it's near, and, and it's here, and it's among you. So, I guess the kingdom's arrived. Well, you, one would think so, except when Jesus teaches us to pray, and we prayed it already this morning, what are we taught to pray? May your kingdom come. Well, well wait a minute. How can I pray may your kingdom come if the kingdom's already here? That doesn't make sense. It's here, but not here? That's right. It's here, but not here. Well, I, like, why is it written this way, and I don't like that? And my answer is talk to Jesus. He said it, right? And, and thankfully, it's explained a little bit, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which reads this way. You, God, have put, and it's in past tense, you have put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Boom. So in other words, when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he wasn't just saying, oh, this is my last breath, I'm going to die. What he meant by it is finished is the battle's over. Like the, the forces of evil in the universe <coughs> were destroyed on the cross, right? 
God, and it says, Hebrews 2, God left nothing that is not subject to Christ. Everything is subject to Christ. Christ rules over everything. Christ reigns over everything. Death has been defeated. And yet, in the same text, it says this, but we do not yet see all things subjected to Christ. So Christ is reigning, but we don't yet see that reign lived out fully, right? So that's the challenge. Jesus said, it is finished. Principalities and powers, boom, defeated. And yet you turn the news on, wait a minute. If the principalities and powers and force of evil are dead, then why are, why are there dead people in an airport in Florida? <laughs> why, why does a van drive into an advent market in Berlin? Why, why is a children's hospital bombed in Aleppo? Why is there cancer? Why, why is there disease? Why is there infidelity? Why, is there, why are there so many tears and so much loneliness and so much addiction? Why, why are there deaths on Aurora yesterday from heroin overdose? Five blocks from here. Why? <laughs> if the kingdom's here, what's going on? Well, here's, this is so significant because it means that the, the manner in which the kingdom is here is it is here to the extent that you are letting Christ reign. You. You're the kingdom. You're the presence of the future. Wow. That's a, that's a responsibility and opportunity. It means that if we claim that Christ is our king, we are called to make the reign of Christ visible in small seed-like measures now <laughs> while recognizing that the kingdom won't come in fullness until Christ reigns in fullness. And, and what this should do is it should make us people of perpetual hope but also, while we hold this hope, we also bear a strong dose of reality. Does that make sense? I mean, until Christ fully reigns, there will be disease and human trafficking and greed and addiction and famine and wars. And our own intellects will be messed up so that we'll argue with politics. It's okay. It's still a fallen world. But the one thing we know is this. Christ reigns. And, and Christ's reign will fully vanquish all forces of darkness. And in the meantime, our responsibility is to allow those forces of darkness to be vanquished in us so that we can represent the heart of God with greater and greater and greater clarity so the light of Christ will shine in and through us into our city and our world. That's our calling, making the reign of God visible. So finally then, the last thing I want to share with you is that uh, we see this kingdom as an ecosystem, right? And so... Ecosystems are important because if you take one piece out of an ecosystem, it affects the whole thing. You can't, you can't have one without having the all. And so when, when you're thinking about, well, what does it mean uh, to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God is this kind of Matthew 5 stuff here, then what you see is first we have a calling to be salt and light. And we saw that in Matthew 5, 17, right? So we have this calling, and that means we have these, these uh, certain uh, kind of uh, values of the kingdom that we hold together. But then, it's very important that together is important because we're also called to be a community. And this also is in Matthew 5. Where, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5? You've heard it said, uh, what, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, remember? Love your enemies. And, oh, and by the way, I say to you also, you know, don't get angry and start yelling at each other 
Because when you do that, you misrepresent the heart of God. And then John 13, Jesus explicitly says there, by this all men will know that you're my disciples in that you demonstrate outwardly and in a real way, you demonstrate what? Love for one another. So we're called to, to be a loving community, but we're called to be a, a loving community who embrace the values of the kingdom. And all, both of these are contingent on us being, uh, actually, in John 3, we're called to be born again. This guy, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus in John 3, and he says, hey, I want to be part of this kingdom. This kingdom sounds amazing. But uh, what Jesus said is, well, being part of the kingdom is not signing a petition, and it's not being part of an initiative, and it's not putting a bumper sticker, think world peace, on the back of your Volvo. No, no. You want to, look, you want to be part of the kingdom? Here's the starting point. You must be what? Born again. Like your personal heart, it's my Baptist upbringing. Your heart needs Jesus. And so I, the reason it's an ecosystem is unless I'm born again, my community can never demonstrate the love of Christ because I need Christ to love like Christ. But if I will love like Christ, my love will be filled not only with grace so that I go with the winds of wherever culture is going, my, my love will be filled with truth so that I challenge culture as well with the values of the kingdom. And so I need the values of the kingdom and I need a personal relationship with Christ and I need to be in community and take any one of those out, you're not involved in God's story. And every one of us in the room, I think, uh, approach this a bit like a buffet. Do you know what I mean? And so, I don't know what you like or don't like, but if you happen to not like broccoli, if there's anybody in the room who's that way, then, then it's like we can go, oh, yeah, uh, salt and light, I'm in, right? That's uh, bacon for me. Give me more. Born again, personal relationship with Jesus, absolutely. Community. Too much time, people are draining, broccoli. Right, so I try and live with values personally, not the kingdom. Some of you love community as long as you don't have to call anyone to account with values. No truth-telling. <laughs> but that's not real community. And so the whole thing falls apart again. And some of you try and embody the values in the community without mentioning the need to be born again. And if you're trying to do that, you're trying to run a car without gas. You can't live the life for which you're created without Jesus, which brings us to the final point, the nature of kingdom people. And what we see regarding kingdom people is this. Kingdom people are, above everything else, poor in spirit. Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to them. And so Nicodemus, being told that he needed to be born again, uh, what it revealed to Nicodemus was his poverty of spirit, Right? Uh, and poverty simply is this. Poverty is the gap between what's needed and what I have. There's a gap. Now, what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? It means that I, I have this recognition that I can't, like, this isn't difficult for me. This is what? Impossible. Because the resources that, that is my humanity are inadequate to live into this calling. I can't do it. So Paul, Paul kind of unpacks this for us. Second Corinthians 3, Paul says, we're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. I think it's a very important statement. What do you mean, Paul? You can't do anything. Certainly you can do something. Well, what Paul means there, as he goes on, he says, our adequacy is in Christ because Christ has made us adequate, Here, listen, as ministers of a new covenant. So my calling, like what am I not adequate to do? I'm not adequate to sow seed. I'm not adequate to be light. I, well, I can preach, 
I can preach in the flesh. I have a good vocabulary. I, and I went to seminary. And, I, and I, I like intellectual stuff, chess games and things like that. And I like to argue. So I can preach. It's fine. But I'll, no fruit from preaching. No, what's needed is uh, Christ animating me so it's not my words, but Christ's words. And I can't do that. And here's the, the, so the fundamental question on the table is, well, like if you can preach without Christ, how do you know you can't preach? Here's how I know, because I know who I'd be apart from Jesus. And I say to my wife, we've had this conversation, look, I don't know if we'd be married today if it wasn't for Christ, because I know my flesh. I know lust. I know greed. I know anger. I know doubt. I know cynicism. I know my propensity to disengage. I know it. It's in me. I have the flesh. You have the flesh. So I don't have what it takes to be a kingdom citizen. I need a life that I don't have to live the life for which I'm created. And the life that I need that I don't have is Christ's life. And the good news is Christ offers me nothing less than that life. (laughs) But I will never receive it unless my hands are, hear me, empty. Empty hands receive. Full hands are like, nope, I'm good. Can I just say you're not good? That's a hard thing to say to like a well-educated, upwardly mobile, pretty wealthy congregation of people. You're not good. But I can tell you you're not good because two weeks ago, three weeks ago, remember I said regarding the aroma of Christ, unless the vessel is broken, the aroma isn't released. Come up here and name your brokenness. And people brought little sheets of paper, bunches of them. I'm still reading them. And they bring me to tears. But they're tears of joy because I recognize we're a broken congregation. And our brokenness, we're needy. I had a friend who was leading worship in, uh, on the East Coast, up in the Northeast. And so he was there for a weekend and then a week-long conference. The weekend thing was uh, Ivy League college students, right? So Dartmouth, Harvard, Yale, Christian college kids. And they're all gathered. They're all smart and good-looking and well, you know, you, you get it, right? They all, they're all polished. So he's up there, and my buddy is not as polished, and he's got a big beard and wears Birkenstocks everywhere, and he's, you know, he's leading worship, and, it, and the song he was leading for these college kids was, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Do you know it? Not my brother. You maybe don't know. It doesn't matter. It's me, it's me. And so the point is, it's a confessional song, right? I need Jesus. So then, he's just playing with it. And so they're kind of singing half-heartedly. And then he goes, okay, now the next song of the chorus, just the sinners. That's what he said. Dead quiet. (laughs) Right? Just the sinners. Well, hey, like, define, I can just hear the minds of Ivy Leaguers. You know, define sin. What are you talking about here? Sin? Come on, I got in Harvard, man. 4-0, cum laude, medical school. I speak four languages. My dad gave me a, a Mercedes for high school graduation. I've traveled Europe. Sin does not compute. I mean, the room was silent. And, you know, then a few people, he said, a few people started singing. And then a few people started singing. The other people were looking. Oh, He's singing. What what his sin is, right? So it, that was discouraging to him. They leave. In comes AA for a week. 
the alcoholics, right? So the first night, I'm going to do a little experiment. No, 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 no. It's me, it's me. And then you know where this is going. Just the sinners, he says on the chorus. Before the chorus even starts, a guy shouts, hey, that's us. Boom. <laughs> Everyone's singing. Yeah, we know that our hands are what? Empty. It's the first step in AA. Are your hands empty? Well, here's the deal. Yes, but do you know it? That's the question on the table. Because we're mighty good, friends, and I am too, as a culture, mighty fine at creating a veil of self-sufficiency. And that, like the, the kingdom starts here. My hands are what? Empty, empty. It's me, Lord. Because without you, it's, it's lust or it's greed, or it's fear, or it's disengagement from the other who's of a different race or socioeconomic class, or, or, it's, or it's cynicism, or it's self-righteousness. But Lord, whatever it is, without you, I cannot be a kingdom citizen. It's me, Lord, that needs transformation. And when you say that, here's Jesus right here at this table. Good news. I will be in you what you could never be on your own, a person of hope in a world gone mad. So we come to the table to celebrate at the beginning of the new year that we are called to be nothing less than the presence of Christ, sowing seeds of hope every day, generously, joyously, knowing, knowing fruit will come. We don't have to see it. It'll happen. But it starts by receiving all that he is, and this is why we come to the table. So as the servers come, please join me in prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can gather within these walls to hear your voice, listen to you speak, we invite you now to speak to us at this table. May we open our hands and name the reason they're empty. Name our need in order that we might receive from you all that you are. So fill us, Father, that we become people of hope in greater measure in 2017. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.